Welcome to Yesterday Meets Today, Themes Throughout History. I'm Spencer Vollmer, your host and guide as we explore the themes connecting the histories of the distant and not-so-distant past with each other and also with our own more recent history. Together, we'll boldly venture out in pursuit of knowledge, always striving to learn new things about the past, the present, and maybe even a little bit about ourselves along the way. our Halloweenish theme. So far we've explored some ancient festivals, a more modern one in China, and the iconic Day of the Dead festival in Mexico. Now it's time to turn our attention to the holiday from which our American Halloween is derived, Samhain. If you aren't familiar with the holiday, the first thing you might be wondering is why I'm pronouncing it as Samhain. The spelling you see in the episode title or on social media probably makes you think it should be pronounced as Samhain, but that's not the case. Samhain is an ancient Gaelic word, and the MH in the middle isn't intended to be pronounced as it appears. My understanding is that the MH in the middle of a word indicates a pause or a break between syllables and takes on the W sound in Irish Gaelic or, in Scottish Gaelic, a V sound, which makes it Sauvin. Gaelic itself is a Celtic language with Irish and Scottish referring to the nationalities. There is also a Welsh Gaelic in this language group with their own pronunciation, Samhain. Going forward, I'll be using the Irish Gaelic pronunciation, Samhain. In short, the MH is kind of like its own letter, but they don't have the letter W, so we have the MH. And that's how you get Samhain from that spelling. Well, there's your etymology lesson for the day. Now that you know how to pronounce Samhain and why, let's start digging into the history. Samhain originates with the ancient Celts. There's a good bit of history to unpack when it comes to the Celts, with parts that are disputed and actively debated to this day. As much as I'd like to get into all of that, we'll have to save it for another day. For the purpose of exploring Samhain, I'm going to focus on the Irish Celts. Just know that the people collectively known as the Celts were once widely spread throughout Europe. I'll post a map if you're interested in seeing where they were outside of what we talk about today. Recorded Irish history doesn't appear until the 5th century CE, but we do have some records of people present on the island prior to that. First, we have archaeological evidence that indicates the presence of humans as far back as 10,500 BCE and gives us at least some idea of what kind of life they might have lived. In the Mesolithic period, spanning from 8,000 to 4,000 BCE, there is evidence of nomadic hunter-gatherers on the island. Common archaeological evidence is made up of stone tools, from which the period gets its name. They use spears, arrows, and harpoons to catch food such as fish or wild boars and collected nuts and berries. Shelters were seasonal huts made of wood with animal skins or thatch, a mix of living and dead plants, stretched over the top. The Neolithic period came next and continued through 2500 BCE. This period was kicked off by the arrival of something called a Neolithic package. That's a term for the various innovations that come with domesticating plants and animals. It starts elsewhere prior to this time and arrives in Ireland around 4500 BCE. First we find cereal cultivars such as wheat, housing culture, and stone monuments. Increases in population led to the importing of cereal, goats, sheep, and cattle from Europe. 
earliest evidence of farmers is found on the Dingle Peninsula on the southwest part of the island in 4350 BCE, with an extensive field system emerging in 3500 up north. In this system, they primarily grew wheat and barley. With farming came settlement, and that meant changes in housing. These huts were larger, with thatched roofs going almost all the way to the ground. I'll post pictures of reconstructions both of this and of a Mesolithic hut that are found in the Irish National Heritage Park. You might notice some similarities with housing we looked at last month in Japan. Also in this period we find tombs, and not just one type, but four. Each would originally have been covered with earth that has been eroded over time, though some do still have this covering. Most human remains were cremated, engraved goods such as jewelry and weapons were buried with them. The first, and the most widespread, are wedge tombs. The name pretty much tells you what they were. The burial chambers were wedge-shaped, with the decrease in size going from west to east, with the door usually facing west. 500 or so still survive today, with most in the southwest and up to the northwest of Ireland. Moving up north, the next type is portal tombs. These have an entrance marked by tall stones called portal stones, with a stone on top and sloping down towards the back where it sits on the aptly named backstone. The sides of the chamber narrow at the back. Finally, in most cases, the entrance faces the east, but many tombs have been found facing in different directions. Moving now to passage tombs found primarily in the east and west. These are made in mounds of earth with a passage that leads into one or more chambers. Simple enough. The last type is court tombs found almost entirely in the northwest. These are made up of four rectangular chambers made with large slabs of rock. Human remains, cremated or not, might be found in some or all of these chambers. The name comes from an open, oval-shaped court located outside the entrance. That's all four types of tombs, and many more remain that aren't classified in these groups. Next, Ireland moved into the Bronze Age, lasting from 2500 until 500 BCE. As the name indicates, this period is marked by the introduction of metallurgy and bronze objects. The bronze was made by mixing the popular copper with tin. Bronze was used to make a variety of objects, including, of course, weapons. Axes, swords, and other bladed weapons have been found. Aside from weapons, drinking utensils and horn-shaped trumpets are just two of the types of items that have been found. Additionally, Ireland had a lot of native gold that was used to make jewelry and other ornamental items, many of which were traded outside of Ireland. Regarding the tombs we talked about, their use ends early in this period. The building of large monuments declined as well. Later in this age, a new kind of burial emerged involving a single grave. A rectangular chest was made out of stone, the remains were placed inside, it was covered with a stone slab, and then it was buried. As with the tombs, the body may or may not have been cremated. I couldn't find if the dimensions of the stone chest were changed based on whether or not the person was cremated. Later on, cremated remains were placed in an urn that was placed inside the stone chest upside down, and grave goods may have been included, but they weren't always placed in the graves. Finally, stone circles emerged in this time as well. Now we move into the Iron Age, lasting from 500 BCE to 400 CE, and this is when we'll start to find written records, though not from Ireland. 
the written records of their own won't be found just yet. In this case, the records come from Greece and Rome, who were already literate at the time. Some of the earliest make rather outlandish claims, among them that people would eat their dead fathers. Another is that cattle had to be stopped from eating the abundant grass, or else they would burst. While unreliable, writings like these do provide evidence of how long people were on the island, and they tell us that people elsewhere in the world had taken notice of them, even if what they wrote doesn't provide us factual information. That attention is going to play an important role in Ireland's history and in what we are going to see in the history of Samhain. We also have some references from prominent figures such as Julius Caesar. In his book, Commentarii de Bello Gallico, translated as Commentaries on the Gallic War, Caesar makes reference to the island using the name Hibernia in 58-49 to 49 BCE. This makes him the first to refer it by this classical Latin name. The name Ireland doesn't show up until sometime later. He mentions it as being half the size of Britain and accurately places it to the west of Britain. Other writings indicate that Rome might have sent a military expedition to the island. Ptolemy from Alexandria, who lived during the 2nd century CE, provided a detailed account of Ireland's geographic makeup. Alright, now we're moving into history with more details, written Irish history, and we're finally going to start talking about Samhain. I know that was a fair amount of history of Ireland itself, but I thought having a background of how Ireland came to be would be beneficial as we go forward. Now let's bring the Celts to Ireland so they can start celebrating Samhain. So, the Celts weren't in Ireland for most of that history we just talked about, though the progression of society on the island does lead us to the point where they appear. They didn't arrive until the end of the Bronze Age in 500 BCE when they arrived from continental Europe. Keep in mind that the Celts weren't an empire or any other formal organization. The name refers to the different peoples who are grouped under the same culture. The language is a big part of how these peoples are identified, with the way it's split into different branches serving to identify separate groups who were still Celts. The Celts we're talking about, the ones that went to Ireland and celebrated Samhain first, came from a group called Insular Celts. All of the Celtic languages that still survive today came from this insular group. Three from the Brythonic branch, Breton, Cornish, and Welsh, and three from the Gaelic branch, which is relevant for us today, Irish, Manx, and Scottish Gaelic. These insular Celts lived in Great Britain and Ireland after the Bronze Age, though some evidence indicates they may have already become established earlier in that age. Whatever the case, they were present and dominant during the Iron Age when the previously mentioned written sources talked about them. Samhain is one of four Gaelic seasonal festivals. The others are Imbolc, celebrated on February 1st to mark the beginning of spring, Beltane, celebrated on May 1st to mark the beginning of summer, Lugnasad, celebrated on August 1st to mark the beginning of the harvest season, and finally, we have Samhain, originally celebrated on November 1st to mark the end of the harvest season and the beginning of winter. From what I understand, Samhain was viewed as the most important of the four. I mentioned that the festival took place on November 1st, but it actually starts on October 31st. The Celtic day was marked by the sun, beginning with sunrise and ending with sunset. So the festival didn't start until the day was done. 
when tasks like bringing cattle from the summer pastures and slaughtering livestock to prepare meat for the winter were finished. It also served to bring in what they called the dark half of the year. Before I go on, just an interesting note to point out and one of the reasons I gave that history of Ireland. While the festival started with the Celts, there is evidence that the day itself was important all the way back to the Neolithic times from 4000 to 2500 BCE. Remember those tombs I mentioned? Some of the passage tombs align with the sunrise around this time. The festival wasn't celebrated back then, but they still found the day to be important. As in some other festivals, fire was and still is an important part. Hearth fires in the home were left to burn while everybody was out gathering the harvest. Rather than being put out as they might otherwise, here they were left to burn out on their own. Once the work was done, the celebrants joined with the druid priests to light a community fire. They accomplished this using a wheel which caused friction and sparked the fire. Symbolically, this was representative of the sun, and the people prayed as the fire was lit. When they returned home, each family took a flame from this big community fire for relighting their hearth, so they took part of the fire symbolically created by the sun to warm their own hearth. The symbolism of the sun and the fire is about protection, purification, and holding back the darkness of winter. The exact symbolism is one of those things that seem to vary by both region as well as over time. But the idea here is that by creating this bonfire and then subsequently taking part of it to their homes, people were preparing and protecting themselves, not against the creatures we'll talk about in a bit, but against the darkness of winter. It makes sense when looking at Ireland's climate. It gets cold there during the winter months, and some areas only get a few hours of sunshine during the day, with some as little as one hour. So when we see the phrase dark half of the year, it's a rather literal description. Now I want to talk just a little bit about the Druids, give you an idea of who these Druids were and why they were important to the Samhain festival, beyond what you may have heard in modern terms. Druids were a high-ranking class in ancient Celtic cultures. A popular view regarding their name is that it comes from an Irish Gaelic word for oak tree, which was seen as a symbol of knowledge. Most people have probably heard of them in a religious context, with a focus on the natural world. They had multiple gods, with female gods and other sacred figures among them, not entirely unlike the Greeks and Romans. However, they were nomadic and perceived as less civilized by the Romans. They had other duties, too. They served as political advisors and legal authorities. In line with their legal context, they were adjudicators, presiding over formal disputes and providing judgment as well as arbitration. They also worked in the medical areas of the time. Additionally, they were lore keepers, important because the Celtic society was still an oral one. And even though Druids are thought to have been literate, they left no written records behind. The reason is that there was a doctrine preventing them from writing their own knowledge down. We still have written records of them from Greece and Rome. Julius Caesar provides the oldest description in the same book that I mentioned earlier. Something important to consider here is that you have to remember where the sources came from. These are Greco-Roman sources. They may not be 100% accurate because they were written by a society that looked down on the Celts as barbarians. For example, the frequent claims that they took part in human sacrifice may have more to do with the Roman views on barbarians than they do on the Druids themselves. Just as the written references of Druids appear in Rome, their disappearance is also caused by Rome. 
After the Romans invaded Gaul, the area of Western Europe inhabited by the Celts, the Druids faced suppression. One form was the law that a person could not be a Roman citizen and be a Druid at the same time. Tiberius and Claudius, Roman emperors in the first century CE, actively suppressed the Druids during their rule, and by the second century the Druids no longer appeared in the written sources. So things didn't end well for them once the Romans moved in. Still, you can see that they held a place of importance in multiple ways, including the festival of Samhain, and their influence didn't disappear from the holiday. The religious aspects still encompassed the day and the festival influencing the rituals and the traditions the Celts observed. One such aspect influenced by the religious nature is found in the early references to Samhain that present it as a mandatory celebration. All were expected to attend and appear before local leaders. If someone didn't participate, it was believed they would be punished by the gods with either illness or death. Pretty serious stuff. As are the references that indicate using a weapon or committing a crime during Samhain would be punished with death. The seriousness of the festival is understood when looking at what they believed occurred during this point in time as the harvest season ended and the dark half of the year began. This was a time when the barriers between the physical and spiritual worlds broke down, allowing beings of the other world to visit Earth and interact with humans. My understanding is that this is still believed, at least by some, who celebrate Samhain in modern times. Now these beings from the other world caused trouble in some form or another. Few, if any, were considered friendly. Even outside Samhain, the ancient Celts had monsters and demons alongside their many deities. Offerings were made for the spirits that crossed the barrier in hopes that they might be propitiated and not cause any harm. One notable group is the fairies. Offerings were left outside villages or out in fields for them to find. Out of concern that fairies not satisfied with these offerings might kidnap them, some Celts would dress themselves up in disguises, either as animals or monsters that the fairies would leave alone. Sound familiar? Still related to fairies, sometimes a group of hunters would appear on Samhain as well. This group was known as the fairy host and, as the name implies, would hunt people down in order to kidnap them. Another group called the Slough were also out to kidnap, but in their case it was souls they were after. The latter group would approach from the west and enter people's homes to accomplish their goal. It seems that these groups either did not appear every Samhain, or perhaps they emerged as a regional variation on the celebrations. Still, whatever the case, they are commonly associated with the festival as entity celebrants needed to protect themselves from. Another common group was the Dullahan. They appeared as headless men on horses with flaming eyes. Different from the other groups, it appears the Dullahan weren't actually out to cause any harm on their own. Their presence was considered an omen, and a pretty terrible one at that. If you encountered one, it was believed you had encountered a death omen for yourself. You didn't die at their hands, and they didn't kill you on the spot or return for you later, but you still did not want to encounter them. I'm not sure how, if at all, the costumes affected these encounters. I also found records of some more specific monsters that would appear during Samhain. One is a creature called Puka. This one is a shapeshifter. Offerings from the field were left out to appease it, perhaps set aside during the harvest that had taken place the day before the festival began. 
Another specific monster was a headless woman referred to as Lady Gwyn. Dressed in white, she chased people who were out at night. For reasons I'm not sure of, she had a black pig with her. The only specific reference I could find to this pig was that it was an incarnation of the devil. But since I could only find that one reference, I'd say take it with a grain of salt. Various tales in Irish mythology were also associated with Samhain. Here's a brief rundown of some of the more popular ones. One focuses on young hero Fionn Macul. He lived in a place called Terra, where a fire-breathing creature called Island would lull the entire population to sleep. Once that was done, it would burn the court to the ground. This happened every year for 23 years and took place during Samhain. One year, Fionn managed to stay awake by sticking his spear into his forehead and then using that spear to kill the creature. Another was a hero called Nera in Kruachan. He underwent a bravery test set by King Ailil, with the price being the king's gold-hilted sword. The task was to go to the gallows and tie a twig around a hanged man's ankle. The challenge involved was that the spirits would harass anyone who tried, causing that person to turn back. Nera attempted this task during Samhain night and succeeded, which caused the man to come to life and ask for water. When Nera got him the water, he saw the royal palace had burned to the ground. Nera is told by a woman from the fairies' mounds that this is the future if the people of the court are not warned. Other myths are associated as well, but I don't want to get too off track with mythology, fascinating as it is. The latter tale is related to the last point I want to mention from this time period. Divination rituals were also a part of Samhain. Sometimes the bonfires were used, but not always. In households, the use of apples and hazelnuts were common for divination. In mythology, apples were associated with the other world and immortality, while hazelnuts were associated with divine wisdom. The various rituals typically centered around death and marriage. They also had games during this time using the food items. One should sound familiar, bobbing for apples. With those details in mind, we'll turn our attention to Samhain through a later part of the Middle Ages. Not too much changes at this point. We start to see bonfires that are smaller and nearer to farms. As you might expect, these fires were less of a community act and more personal for the people at each farm. The reasoning falls along the same lines as other parts of Samhain. In making these personal fires near the farm, people hope to protect their families from the fairies. At this time, we also see our first jack-o'-lanterns, though these are not pumpkins yet. In this time period, they were made from carved turnips. Coals were then embedded into the turnips. They were then attached to strings, which were attached to a stick and hung outside the home. So now you know where they started, let's talk about how they got the name. Let's talk about Stingy Jack. Stingy Jack was a man in Irish myth. As the story goes, he invited the devil to have a drink with him. Well, he didn't get his name for nothing. He didn't want to pay. He convinced the devil to turn himself into a coin to pay for the drinks. Instead of paying, he pocketed the coin next to a silver cross which kept the devil transformed. He later freed the devil on the condition that he'd leave him alone for one year and not claim his soul if he died. The next year, Jack tricked the devil into climbing a tree to get a piece of fruit. While the devil was in that tree, Jack carved a cross into it. Jack wouldn't allow him down until he promised to leave him alone for another ten years. You know, 
At this point, Stingy Jack is sounding rather crafty, or the devil just isn't too bright. Not long after this trick involving the tree, Jack died. The legend says that God wouldn't allow him into heaven because he was such an unsavory character. So Jack turned to the devil. Of course, the devil didn't like being tricked, and he had made a deal not to claim Jack's soul. So he wouldn't let Jack into hell. He instead gave Jack a burning coal and turned him out into the night. Jack put the coal in a carved-out turnip and has wandered the earth ever since. And so we first got the name Jack of the Lantern, which we now know as Jack-O-Lantern. People in Ireland and Scotland started making their own lanterns, carving scary faces into turnips or potatoes and leaving them in windows or outside doors to scare away Stingy Jack and other evil spirits. Another tradition called Dumb Supper started during this time. Contrary to other nighttime celebrations that involve protecting against evil spirits, these invited good spirits in. Celebrants consumed food only after inviting ancestors in to join the celebration and interact until dinner was concluded. Children played games as entertainment for the dead, while adults told them what had happened since the last Samhain. Now Christianity appears. Pope Boniface in the 5th century was the first to try and change Samhain. Rather than attempt to get rid of it, he tried to move it in line with Christian holidays. You've heard this idea before when we talked about the Day of the Dead. In this case, he moved Samhain to May 13th and defined it as a day to celebrate saints and martyrs. Despite his attempts, the Celts did not stop celebrating the fire festivals at the time they always had. In the 9th century, Pope Gregory took a different approach. He moved the holiday back to the original date with the fire festivals. However, he changed the name to something familiar, All Saints Day. And then All Souls Day, of course, showed up on November 2nd. This first attempt to replace Samhain with a feast day wasn't as successful as the Pope hoped. They did manage to diminish the deities, turning gods to things like fairies or leprechauns that we hear about today, but they couldn't get the old beliefs to die out. The culture and symbolism were too strong and ingrained to be replaced by a feast day that was fairly abstract in definition. The second attempt, which established All Souls Day to pray for the souls of the dead, followed the attempts to redefine local customs, but ultimately it only served to continue them in a new form. The attempts to Christianize the Samhain traditions just wasn't working as they'd hoped. As time went on, new customs emerged while Samhain persisted. Mumming and guising emerged in the 16th century. People went house to house in a disguise of some sort and would sing songs or verses in exchange for cakes. This likely evolved from the tradition of dressing as animals or monsters in order to be protected from the spirits. Another tradition that emerged in the 1700s is mischief night pranks. The imitation costumes to protect from spirits, particularly when imitating malignant spirits themselves, easily led to pranks. This is why sometimes you hear October 31st referred to as Mischief Night. While this changed over time, in the more ancient festivals, tricks were blamed on fairies. As time went on, despite the Christianization attempts and following the emergence of new traditions and some gradual changes, people still celebrated as they had, with October 31st being the most intense. It came to be called All Hallows' Eve, with the main change being that all supernatural beings were now considered evil. The act of propitiating them continued as it had. Eventually, All Hallows' Eve became Hallow Evening, which became Halloween. Admittedly, this is a simplified view of a very long process. 
It was a gradual change over hundreds of years. And this is not American Halloween. We still have much more to do before we get to that. As one last note, though a new version with a new face and a new name has emerged, Samhain itself is not gone. A revival of a more traditional Samhain, pre-Christianization, has begun to emerge since the late 20th century. And that's Samhain, with some history of Ireland to go with it. There's more to know about how the traditions of Samhain moved in the direction of the Halloween we know, even before they crossed the Atlantic, but I'm going to save some of that for next week. I think it'll fit in better there. I hope you'll tune in Tuesday as we round out our Halloweenish theme. Until then, take care. <laughs>